0: Welcome to the Ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Thank you, Praise Team. Well, I'm going to continue this morning with what we've been, at least in some ways, studying for several weeks. Um, And I say several weeks. We took up this, um, initially, the study of Mephibosheth and went into the blood covenants which David and Jonathan were a, a type of. And, and I say that because everything we do as a Christian comes down to um, believing what Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? If it, if it wasn't reflected there, it's we really don't have a right to lay claim to it with faith all of our faith is based on what he did that's what you know Paul's revelation and Paul had a tremendous revelation all of his revelation was centered on what Jesus did not just what Jesus did but how what Jesus did changed him Paul was the Paul was the one that had the the revelation of who I am in Christ that was Paul's real revelation it's not just me but it's Christ in me that's the hope of glory that's that's how we do everything that we do it's it's how does Christ empower us to live the life that he's called us to live amen and we, we looked at that through David and Jonathan, and, and really through all of that, and I'm, I'm not going to go back and, and relive all of that, but the, the big point that I saw there was in the life of Mephibosheth, he was born named Maribal. He was born with the name, his parents said, you have a destiny, and your destiny is to contend with Baal. Baal was a false god. Actually, when, when you look at Ashtaroth, Baal, the Baals, it's, it's all centered on devil worship. It's Satan that they're worshiping. Or Paul said it in, in um, I forget which one of the epistles, he said, you know, an idol is nothing. It's just a hunk of rock, a hunk of wood. But there is a demon behind that idol, that when you worship that idol, it's not that piece of wood, it's not the object that you need to be concerned about, it's the demon behind that object that you're empowering. And you're not just empowering, but you're surrendering to that thing. We have, in our modern mind, we have this idea, well, we don't worship idols anymore. Really? Just look at our city. What's the most expensive Structures, two structures that we have in the city of Indianapolis. One of them is devoted to football, and one of them is devoted to basketball and entertainment. They're both centered around something that's fun. Nothing wrong with fun. We just talked about it. Merry heart does good like a medicine. I just spent this week. Um, um, just got on youtube one day and i bet i listened to 30 minutes i finally just realized this is starting to be a distraction i need to cut it off but john chris is a pk he's a comedian and um i can't remember tim hawkins yes the man just he i and, and sometimes it's not just are they funny but do they strike your particular funny bone? Well, Tim Hawkins just, I mean, the man can say good morning, and I, I just roll on the floor. He's hilarious. But it was amazing watching these two guys, and it was just silly stuff. But I felt better after I got done, because you can't watch it without laughing. Well, I say that not to say that there's a problem with, with football or basketball or going to concerts or doing anything for entertainment. But when that becomes your God... You're bowing down to that. And if you want to see where our society is, who are the most, and I'm not talking about Christians, but I'm talking about our society in general, who are the most respected and revered people in our society? It's celebrities, and some of them are just famous for being famous. And some of them got famous, and they're now famous, unfortunately, because they made sex tapes and they, that got their name before people. You look at some of the, the singers, when their um, um, careers start to, to lag, they're going to go one of two ways. They're either going to come out and, and, and do a whole series of gospel albums to go tap into the Christian, whether they're, whether they're believers or not, or they're going to start doing lewd, crazy, wild stuff just because it'll bring cameras you know the old saying you know if you want to um draw a crowd just set yourself on fire people come to just watch you burn well it's true and the world doesn't care what they do they just care they just want to get their 15 minutes of fame well we need to make sure that that where our attention goes and we do need to have fun in life but we need to know that 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 Life is always serious. It's life and death issues that we deal with on a daily basis. But we can have fun in the middle of it because going into it, I already know I won. I mean, I played sports in high school and I never went into a game thinking, well, there were a few I went into thinking, oh, we got this one won. Usually we got spanked pretty hard when you go into it with that attitude. But I always, our team in in our little school, we, in, in our county, which is who we competed most with, we went in confident. We could, there's, not, but there's no team in this county that, that we can't beat. And we went in with confidence, and consequently, our, our little um, school, they had a county tournament every year in basketball, I think we'd won it like 14 out of the previous 15 years. We just expected it. And a lot of the teams went in and they were close to our ability. But they expected we were probably going to win because we just beat them so long. We need to have that confident expectation. Go in, not a cockiness. I got this covered. No, we don't have anything covered. But Jesus does. And we need to go in with that confidence. Now, last week, we looked at at primarily Luke chapter 1. And we looked at, at the story of, of Zacharias and how Gabriel came to him and, and told him, you're going to have a son. I, I don't care that you're old. I don't care that Elizabeth's old. God said, you're going to have a son. And Zacharias didn't believe him. Gabriel got a little ticked, sewed his mouth shut, so he wouldn't foul things up. But in the end, he said, with God, nothing will be impossible. And then just a, a few months later, he came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, gave her a similar announcement. She received it with the same message with God, nothing is impossible. But if you remember, the normally in, in the Greek uh, translation or the Greek writings of the New Testament, when, when someone wrote upas, which is the Greek word for nothing... It's 227 times that occurs in the New Testament. That's by far how they would say that. But in in that particular place, they added the word rhema there. They wrote it out. It's a compound word, upas rhema. And literally, it, it means nothing revealed to you by God lacks the power that's within the revelation to accomplish what He's revealing to you. That was the whole message. In fact, this week I came across this quote from Jack Taylor, if you remember who Jack Taylor was. He's an elderly man, pastor, retired now. But he had a tremendous revival go on in his church for many years, back um, uh, a decade or so ago. But I came across this, this quote of his. He said, No freshly spoken word of God will ever come to you that does not contain in itself the ability to perform itself. When God tells you something, the ability to get done what He said is there with it. Paul said it in in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When you hear the Word, faith is right there with the Word to accomplish what the Word needs to accomplish. It's just, do we get in agreement with it? That's the question. It all comes down to to us. And we went to um, 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to go there. But as we go there, I I want to bring you into remembrance of this. And I've, I've mentioned this several times in the past. Go on over to 1 Peter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. But in Schofield's notes... In his notes in particular on Romans 1.16, where it says, um, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God, uh, resulting in salvation. He makes, the, 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 um, or makes note that our salvation is in three tenses. There is a past tense, when I got saved, my spirit got reborn. That's done. Accomplished. I'm saved and I'm safe. There was was one way in. That's through faith. There's only one way out. That's by deciding I don't want in. The stipulation being I have to be a very mature Christian to even have the ability to do that. The same way my kids, you know, they, they learned early on, and I did too. You don't tell mom and dad that you hate them. Mom and dad don't take that real well. But I've had kids tell me that. Little kids, I hate you. I don't want any part of you anymore. My kids actually said that a couple of times. And what do you do? Well, okay, here's a door. Open it up, escort them out, and say, Well, you're on your own, live on the street now. I know you're only six. I know you're not mature, but you said you hated me. You're not part of the family anymore. Goodbye. And you close the door and you never let them back in. They are sentenced to death. Now, I can hear the giggles. That's just ridiculous. We wouldn't do that, but people think God will do that to them. I ended up in the mud puddle and now you're just, God, God doesn't want anything to do with me because I'm too disgusting. You were more disgusting before you got saved than you ever are after you get saved. That part of our salvation's accomplished, it's done. There is a future part of our salvation that we have no part in. That's called the rapture of the church. And whether we die and go to heaven, and we come back with Jesus at the rapture, or we're here and we're alive when He comes back for His church, we are going to. Our bodies are going to come out of the grave. And let me just let me just throw this out. And I'm not going to try to preach on it or establish it. But quit because I have all kinds of people that I've had come. They're worried about should I be should is it okay to be cremated? Do I need to be um, embalmed? What what do I need to do with my body when I die? Who cares? Do you realize there were Christians that got thrown out to the lions and to the wolves in the Roman days and they ate them, literally, chewed them up. They were processed through their digestive system. There's nothing left. Their atoms, the, the atomic structure of their, for one thing, the whole atomic structure of your body changes dozens of times over your lifetime. Because you just you you eat you you constantly are exchanging all of these things. The body you were born with is not the body you die with. Not even the atoms are the same. It's all exchanged. And if you if you just let nature have its course, ten years after you bury someone, there's nothing left. When God recreates us, he doesn't have to have an embalmed, perfectly preserved body there to put life in he just says here you're going to go down jump in that dirt and there's going to be a perfect brand new incorruptible body that's going to form around your spirit so that one though that's going to happen when when God decides it's going to happen and he's not consulting me about when he thinks the rapture needs to happen it's above my pay grade it's a future thing from us right now. I hope it's about, I hope he comes back before the sermon's done. I'll be honest with you. I'm ready to go. But if it's a hundred years from now, he'll, he'll come when he comes. I don't have any say in that. And if I die before he comes, I'm just my spirit will go to heaven and I'll wait there. It's not permanent home. We won't be in heaven for all eternity. We're just going to be there till he comes back and gives us new bodies. And then, you know, a little over a thousand years after that, we're going to go into a brand new heaven and earth that he's just created brand new. Don't know when that happens. But where I live is the second tense of our salvation. And and Schofield puts it this way. He says, um, the Christian has been saved from the guilt and penalty of sin and is safe. That's being reborn in my spirit. The Christian is going to be saved at the Lord's return. That's somewhere off in the future. But where I live right now, the Christian is being saved from the habit and dominion of sin. The first one was instantaneous. When I confessed Jesus, I got saved. I got born again. I was a brand new creature. It happened that fast, and my spirit changed. The second will be instantaneous, or the third one will be instantaneous. The middle one where I live, and it's a daily struggle. That's what we're talking about here. When when Jesus said, for with God nothing will be impossible, no revelation, he's talking about us getting a revelation of who we are in Christ, who Christ is in us, what his will is for us, and how that plays into our everyday life. And then not only just taking that information and storing it, you know, I, I, I have been in my life at times, I've become a pharmacist. I just have all kinds of gospel pills. And when people come, I pull out the thing, I say, okay, here's your scripture, take this, go do that. But you can become a pharmacist and not be living any of it. I know a lot of pharmacists that smoke, drank, were overweight, unhealthy. They give you all kinds of great advice on how you should live your life physically. They weren't doing any of it. God hasn't called us to be pharmacists. He's called us to live that lifestyle in front of people and, and, and to fully immerse ourselves in that Christian walk. We still have the Gospels. We have the good news that we can share with people, but it's much more effective when people, you run into the, the, the common uh, uh, problems of life. And it doesn't hit you the way it hits everybody else. You all get the report, our plant's closing. They're going somewhere else, or the whole company's going out of business. And we're all going to be without work six weeks from now. And they're not even giving us severance pay. We're just out the door. And everybody else says, man, their heads are hanging. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And you're walking around whistling, smile on your face. And everybody's going to say, did you hit the lottery? What's the deal? Why aren't you worried? Oh, I'm not worried. God got me this job. He's got another one out there and it's going to be a better job than this job. Why would I worry about it? My father, see Psalm 5, 11 and 12 says that my father surrounds me with favor. I'm going to probably, be. I have a friend, true testimony. He worked for an aluminum company. They, they made aluminum products, had a rolling mill in, somewhere down in western Kentucky. And it was owned partly by an American company, partly by a Canadian company, but it was considered a vital national uh, defense uh, company, and it couldn't be fully owned by the Canadian company. Well, the Canadian company decided, hey, if we can't own it and control it, we don't want any part of it, we're pulling out. We're selling off. And the word was, without their capital, we're going down. And this guy was, I mean, if, if the top man's here, he, he's at lower middle management. He's barely started his career. Well, people start jumping ship, and they're jumping ship left, right, right, left. Everybody's leaving the company. They're looking for greater shores. And he's just hanging on. And as this person leaves, he gets a promotion. Another guy leaves, he gets a promotion. A year down the road, the Canadian company realizes they don't have a lot of buyers. They are going to lose their suits selling off their, ha- their 49% of this company. They're better off sticking it out. By this time, he's a senior vice president because everybody above him quit. He's making 10 times what he was making as his lower middle management. But he stuck it out. And suddenly the Canadian company says, well, we're sticking out, we're here for the long run. Man, the stock price went back up, the company started thriving, and he was in like flint. Why did that happen to him? I don't know why it happened, but I do know that in, in the midst of the adversity, God promoted him. Because he, was, he wasn't just hanging on to be hanging on, he was believing God for favor. And God promoted him in the midst of everybody else jumping ship. And some of them took jobs that weren't as good as what they had. But he hung on, he hung on and he was believing, Lord, be it in this company, another company, I'm believing for favor. And he got blessed. God will do that for us. And, and then when people see that, man, he had a testimony. People worked around him. like, "How like, Steve, how did you do this? Well, let me tell you the story. And he and it, all through his story, it's God blessed me here, God blessed me there. It's because I'm a Christian. It's because I'm believing God for this. And he worked hard. He worked hard at his and he was good at his job. But we are in the midst of this of being saved. But we're being saved from the habit and, and from the dominion of sin. And to be honest with you, Paul says it sin and he says it in a, in Romans. Sin shall not have dominion over you. The devil was conquered, and he doesn't have dominion over us in the area of sin. Now, we still have sin in our flesh, in our fleshly bodies, and it, it will rise up. Your body will sometimes just dictate to you and say, I think we need to go do this. And if you, if you allow that desire and you think about it, you'll, you'll end up going off into that. But for the most part, a lot of our sin problem is habit. We've just, this is how we did it. It's how my mama did it, how my grandma did it, how my daddy and my grandpa did it. This is how our family does things. What well, did you ever think that maybe that's not the family you belong to anymore? My family had a lot of habits. I pray over my grandkids. I have literally, I've grabbed my grandf- grandkids, grabbed them and blessed them and brought and, and, and arrested every Curse that my grandparents and great grandparents got into that we're still having to deal with. That I grew up dealing with it. Not having that go to my grandkids. I wasn't smart enough to do that with my kids. I didn't know it. But I do know it now. When they're born, some of them, I mean, they weren't even, they were hardly out of the hospital. Didn't go in, make a big show of it. I just said, hey, can I see him? Sure. You just grab them, lay hands on them, start praying. Just mumble under your breath, but I was letting the enemy know, not this one no you can't have you can't have this one. All of this trash that my grandfather dealt with and he got involved with and it dealt with with me and my brothers and and my cousins, not going to have it, not going to have it it's broken right here. it stops with my line and I'm believing my my, my grandparents or my grandkids are not gonna to have to face some of the things I faced. Because God said, do this. It wasn't that I was so smart, he said do it. Now, we're at 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's start in verse 3. And I'm really heading to verse 9, but I want to read this so that we we get the context. This is Peter speaking. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the new birth. To an inheritance. He didn't just birth us into the kingdom. He gave us a bank account. Not got cash in it, but it does have an inheritance in it. It's an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled that does not fade away it's reserved in heaven for you who are but it's only reserved for you who are kept by the power of god through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time there he's doing with the future tense and the present tense salvation verse 6 says in this you greatly rejoice the faith rejoices because it already knows the answer even though i got to go through the struggle I know where I'm going and I know I'm going to win. Now, I got four quarters of, 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 of sport in front of me and I'm going to sweat and I'm going to get knocked down. I'm going to knock a few people down. But in the end, when the, when the timer goes off, I'm going to be ahead. Plus, I'm playing golf since it's backwards then I'll be, have the low score. That was just a little dig to the golfers. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God, and and, and let me be clear about this, I've said it before, there are two types of suffering in this world. There, there is suffering that Jesus paid the price for at the cross. Sickness and disease. Poverty. Those are part of the curse. We don't suffer with those. I've had people tell me, "Well, I'm, uh, you know, I, I believe God put this cancer on me and I'm suffering for Jesus. And my response usually is, because usually I'm visiting, visiting them in the hospital. And it's like, well, what are you doing here? Pull that IV out. Get home and suffer. If, this, if God brought this on you, you go home and you just let it have its work. Oh, no, no, I'm here to get, get cured. Why would you want to get cured of something God put on you? If God's putting something on me, I want it by the bucket full. I don't want just a little. That's like somebody say, here's a little sliver of cake. Well, where's the rest of it? I don't want the little sliver, I want the chunk of cake. Well, you can't eat that much, it'll make you sick. I don't care, I want it. I want all of it. Well, the cake will make you sick. The great thing is, you know, we get to the the feast during the tribulation. It's a seven-year feast. And we're going to sit at that table and just pig out for seven years and never get full, never get sick, and never get fat. I like that kind of food. Now, the other type of suffering is what Jesus suffered for us or as an example. He suffered with unbelievers. He suffered with people that that opposed him and hated him unjustly. Those sufferings, we're going to suffer. And the closer you walk with him, the more you will suffer that. And we have to suffer it willingly. And we went, and to be honest with you, sometimes we need to clean our mouths up. Because people start persecuting you. Know, I had a, a, a pair of students, and they were openly Christian. But they came to me almost in tears one day, and they said, we're really being persecuted. And I said, well, what happened? Well, we were in the lunchroom, and these people threw their crackers at us. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my Lord. Now, for them, that was traumatic. They, you know, this, that's high school drama. Drama Central. But we don't know what persecution is. You want to see persecution? Go watch the movie Tortured for Christ. This man was, was locked in stocks, and they had they were professionals at it. This was in Romania, which was they made the Soviet Union look like a bunch of you know uh, middle of the road nice guys. They would they would lock him in stocks and take a big paddle and beat the bottom of his feet. For hours and for days, and one particular guard would come through at night and peek into the cell. And if he was praying, he'd pull him out and he'd beat him with his fists. And in one particular scene, that this is, this actually happened. This guy did it. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure that I'm a good enough Christian that I could have done it. Now, maybe when the situation, God, I believe God would anoint you to do to live the way He lived. But this guy burst into his cell, and he was a big guy. And this guy's sitting there praying. guy got in his face and he said, What in the world, after all these years of all the beatings, what have you got to pray for? And he looked up at him and he said, I'm praying for you. And it broke him. It broke him. Well, those things, we are called to suffer those. We're going to suffer persecution. We're going to suffer with that and and we should welcome it but not what he's already what he died for is our substitute. I don't I'm not going to take that. The devil will do his best to put that on me, but I'm going to resist it for all I'm worth also. But that <clears throat> that we we will suffer for a while so that the genuineness of our faith this is all about our faith because it's the only thing of value I own is my faith. I love that, that, that we are, this church is named faith. It's the root of everything we do. It's how you get born again. It's how you live. Everything we do as Christians is done by faith in Christ and in what He has told us. Amen? That faith becomes genuine when we exercise it, and we can't exercise it without opposition. That's what, what Gabriel was trying to say, both in Luke when he talked to Zacharias and Mary, and also in, in Matthew when Jesus said the same phrase, only he didn't say, with God nothing will be impossible. He said, with you. If you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, tiny little faith, you don't have to have much. But if you get a revelation of something that God has said to you, the power to implement that and make that manifest in your life is there with that revelation. It's present there. But we're going to have to, it's going to be tested with fire so that we can be be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, Whom, having not seen, you love. That's the first sign of our faith. I've never met Jesus face to face, but I love Him. Believe in Him. He's more real to me than than some of you are. Because I talk to Him a lot more than I talk to some of you. But notice, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see Him, yet believing, yet exercising your faith. This is the same word for faith, but it's in the verb form. You rejoice with joy inexpressible, and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That salvation is the word "sozo." It's the same word that Jesus used when he talks about the salvation of us, us getting born again. But this is not the salvation of our spirit. It's a salvation of our psycho or psyche or suke. It's my mind. I, I'm I'm always. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me, think of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where, where Paul says we need to cast down every thought and take captive every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I have my, Brother Hagin used to use this, this phrase, we've all got a lot of stinking thinking and we need to cast it down. When God says you're healed and your body screams and says no you're not. Your mind has a choice. Am I going to get in agreement with my flesh or with my spirit? And who I get in agreement with is who I'm going to go with. And if I get in agreement with my, my flesh, and believe me, there are times when it can wear you down. It'll wear you out. It's the reason that God's called us to pray for one another, and to support one another. Because when I'm exhausted by the physical symptoms, I may need you to come in because you don't feel what I feel. And you're not exhausted by what I'm, what I'm exhausted by. And you can come in with fresh faith in what God has said and pray for me and exercise your faith and lend your faith with my faith. That's why we need to operate as a body. We need one another. Because there are days when I just don't have the strength to pray myself out of the pit. I'm chin deep in the quicksand. I need somebody to come grab me by the ears and pull me out. And there will be days when you're... And, and, and when I say you're chin deep in the quicksand, I don't necessarily mean you're off in sin. You just may be so sick that you can't fight the fight anymore. I remember 20 years ago last month I had a heart attack. I'm fighting. I'm driving to, to, to the where I'm going to meet the ambulance and I'm fighting. I'm confessing... Um, psalms lord you're the strength of my heart you're going to get me there even in the ambulance i'm i'm still believing and i'm fighting and i'm exercising my faith i get to the er the doctors start working on me
1: bless her darling heart
0: i hear the nurse she's on the phone no ma'am i think this is your husband gina's on the other line saying that's not my husband my husband's not having a heart attack my husband's at the church cutting up a tree and I'm over there yelling, Gina, get over here. I am having a heart attack. And she heard me. And finally she said, okay, I'll be right there. Well, she got there. And the second she got there, I said, you call Michael. Michael was my pastor. And we were out pastoring our own church, but he had been my, I had been his associate for eight years. We had had some problems. We had had a couple of falling outs over different issues. But I knew if I'm in trouble, he'll pray in faith. I didn't care about theological differences at the moment. What I cared about was I need somebody to believe with me. And she, actually I said this to her as I screamed it to her while the nurse was talking to her on the phone. She called him on the way to the hospital. They showed up about two minutes apart. They walked into that ER and I mean, I'm laying there, I'm, I'm at a 45 degree angle because my lungs are so full of fluid, I can hardly breathe. They're sticking me with so much Lasix, my kidneys are working overtime, I still can't get my lungs clear. And I'm thinking, this may be it. I may be heading to heaven, you know. I'm not ready, I'm 46, but sometimes you just don't have a choice. But they walked in, and my wife was, man, she was like a tiger ready for a battle my pastor walked in, and they grabbed me, and they prayed, and I looked at them. I said, you got it, guys, and I just, I quit. I just relaxed. I told them, I said, the fight's yours. I'm tired. I'm just going to lay back here and take a little nap. And I did. I went off to sleep like a baby. Why? Because I knew I had two faith people in the room fighting for me. And I didn't have to carry that fight. Now, I was still in faith. And in the next couple of weeks, I spent about 10 days in the ICU. I I, I said it. I got out my pad of paper. I got out my Bible. And I wrote out a contract because it needed to be that real to me. And I made a contract. But that moment, I turned the fight over to them because I wasn't able to fight anymore. Now, had I been alone, I think God would have anointed me and given me the strength to do it. If I, you know, you can do a lot of things. I, I called it um, racquetball faith. I played racquetball for a little while. Most exhausting sport, if you've never played it. It's fun, but man, it's exasperating. But when I first started playing, they'd hit balls, and I, it's like, I can't get to that. And finally I had one of my friends said, you know, you're giving up on balls that I know you can get to. And I said, you're crazy. I'm not that fast anymore. They said, well, you got to try. And what I found was that in my head, that ball's coming off, and and they take crazy angles, and it's a small court, and they're they're coming off, and I'm thinking, I can't get to it, but I went for it. And about 90% of the time, I got to the ball. Now, I may not have hit it, you know, a ton, but I at least got a a, a racket on it, and it taught me a life lesson. There are a lot of times when my brain says, you can't do that. That one's too hard, but just like Lou Holtz said, Half the battle's showing up. And I, I, I found in my life since then, because it's been a long, long time since I played racquetball, um, if I go after issues in life that my brain says you're not gonna, you can't get to that one, when I try, about 80, 90% of the time I get there and I, I figure out I, I could do that. I didn't think I could, but I did. Now, I may not be the world's best. I'm not a world-class athlete, but I got to it. And I dealt with it in the Spirit. I dealt with it with my faith. I dealt with it with the issues that I have to deal with in life. That's what we do with with our faith. We just keep trying, keep pushing, keep pushing. And even when the world says it's not going to work, when your brain says, sorry, this is it, check out time, you just say, no, I'm going to keep going. And I'm going to keep trying. But it's the salvation of my souls. It's changing the way I think. James said something similar. James 1.21. James, this is an admonishment by James. He said, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. That's sin. That's the sin life. That's doing things. And, and, and sometimes we think of sin as, as drinking, smoking, carousing. Sometimes sin is just, I, I'm, I really don't need to read my word today. I really don't, you know, that person offended me and I really need to give them a piece of my mind. Or I'm just cutting them off. I'm not talking to them anymore. They're not my friend. They're out of my life. Sometimes that is the filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. It's just stinking thinking. It's thinking that's contrary to God's word. But what does he say? Receive with meekness. The implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Same phrase that that Peter uses. But notice, it's a decision. It's not a passive activity. I have to receive with meekness. I have to look at the word. When when the Bible says that Jesus was the, the meekest man on earth, it doesn't mean that he was just this milk toast, you know, little poof that walked around and everybody bullied him. Keep in mind, Jesus, when he went to cleanse the temple, he didn't lose his temper. A lot of times we think of Jesus, well, he just got mad and threw a fit. No, it says that he sat in the temple and he wove a cord. He took his time. But in his mind, he's thinking, my God built this temple as a house of prayer and you guys have turned it into a den of thieves. And he got up and he set it straight. He kicked over tables, he whipped people, he knocked them about, and he, sat, he, he took the, the, the filthiness that was there and he cleaned it up. There were times, you'll never find that I, I've never been able to find, let's put it that way, in the Gospels where someone came to Jesus, caught up in anything and said, Lord, forgive me that he didn't receive them with gentleness and kindness and, and forgave them and loved on and restored them. But I can see dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and that's just the ones that are recorded, where the Pharisees or the lawyers came, and they're they're biting and devouring people, and he calls them uh, snakes, white vipers, whitewashed sepulchers. He calls them every name in the book. He insults them to their face and says, You guys are just garbage. Wow. I thought God, I thought Jesus called called us to be sweet. He called you to be sweet when the situation calls to be sweet, and he called you to to get up in people's faces when when they need to be, somebody needs to get up in their face. This this implanted word, the the word there implanted means that you it's, it's like planting a seed. You put it and nurture it in soil till it takes root. That's what we do with the word. We it's not something that we just do once. We have to do it over and over. The, the um, uh, scripture that comes to me is Psalm, the first psalm. Very familiar. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in this path of the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This is the key, though. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates day and night. That, the Hebrew word there for meditate literally means to, to murmur, to mumble, to talk to yourself. This is someone that goes to the Word and reads a Scripture and says, Lord, how does that Scripture apply to me today? How does that, how does that commandment, how do I live that out in my life? Let me, just, let me meddle here for a minute. Husbands, how many times have you sat down and said, God, I'm not the husband I need to be. I need you to teach me how to love my wife. Now boy, that'll jerk a knot in your tail. And if you think that's an easy task, you haven't been married more than two minutes. And that's not a, an indictment against wives, that's, that's an indictment against human beings. Because it's hard to have relationships. Relationships. And it's especially hard to have close relationships. Close relationships require honesty, and honesty is hard. It's hard work. Secret to marriage is is that little four-letter word, and it is cussing. And I'm going to cuss in in the pulpit. I don't care if you don't like it. Spelled W-O-R-K. It's work, work, work. Why? Because we're all fallen, selfish creatures. Every husband I've ever talked to, well, my wife doesn't meet my needs. Well, Sparky, whoever said she should. And every wife, let me just go pick on you all for a while, ladies. Every wife, I've had many of them sit down in front of me and say, well, he just doesn't meet my needs. Duh. you need somebody to meet your needs, you're going to have to turn to Jesus because your husband ain't going to do it. He doesn't have the capacity. He cannot do it. I hate to burst your bubble, but Hollywood's vision of of love and romance and marriage is just that. It's a vision. It's smoke and mirrors and it doesn't work. The actors that play those parts can't even get through the, the, the movie half the time without wanting to kill each other. It's called acting for a reason. They're pretending. Now that does not mean that you can't have a glorious, wonderful, joyful marriage together. I'm just saying that it's going to take some conscious work to get it done. And you're going to have to get before the Lord and say, Lord, change my wife. And he's going to say, no. Okay, Lord, change me. Now you're talking. Now he'll get involved. Now he can do something. But it's going to have to start with me. Amen? But it it requires that you do it and do it and do it. I think of Joshua. You go over to to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua had one of the hardest jobs in the world. He had to follow Moses. You realize the um, the Jews to this day revere Moses. And Joshua gets to come in and follow him. That's like... um, following a founding pastor of a very successful church. Not easy to do. But what does the Lord say to him? Verse 7, Joshua 1. Well, the very first phrase, and you'll find this about six or eight times in this first chapter. Only be strong and very courageous. You want to walk the walk of faith? You want to live the Christian life? It's going to take a lot of courage and a lot of strength. But notice, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn to it from the right or the left hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Verse 8 is the key. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but... You shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will have, make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You're going to have to meditate in the word night, day, day, night. You're going to have to constantly be going over scriptures and going over scriptures. How does this affect me? How, does I, how do I walk this out, Lord? How does this have to change me? What do I have to do to reflect who you are in me? And it will never be easy. It will require great, great courage. And uh, let me just be honest. Your brain will fight you tooth and toenail. When I read that, I'm I'm reminded of of Jesus' parable that he told in Matthew 7 and Luke 6 about... um, um, the house, the two houses, one built on sand, one built on rock. Both of them were involved in storms. Both of them had the wind blow, and the rains came. But what was the difference? Why did one fall and one didn't? It was those that heard and did the word. The modern and then and, and this is a this is just a fact. The modern Christian church, at least the American church, we have so intellectualized the gospel. Everything's about doctrine. Well, is your doctrine right? I don't think I agree with you on this doctrinal stance. Well, your doctrine, let me just be quite blunt. Your doctrine's not all correct. Because none of us know it all. And it requires perfect knowledge to have perfect doctrine. And those that set themselves up as heresy hunters and want to check everybody's doctrine, those are the guys that Jesus rebuked. Don't be be that. Don't be one of those people. Be gentle with people, especially those that you disagree with. Because it may turn out when you get to heaven, God may look at you and say, you were wrong, they were right. I mean, it's just amazing. I, I was talking to, the, to somebody yesterday after men's prayer. He was a pastor, and, and he mentioned that he went back and listened to some of his sermons from 20 years ago. And I looked at him, and I thought, you are crazy. I'm not listening to what I preached 20 years ago. I'm embarrassed. I, I did, I've listened to some of them, and I thought, wow, that is so bad. It's just horrible. I didn't know anything. Well, I did know some things, but there are things that I preached back then that I see differently now because I've grown some. I see it a little differently. And we're constantly doing that. So it's not that my doctrine, we, we, we so intellectualize it and want to so be doctrinally pure that we lose the fact that this is something that we have to live out. There are certain doctrines that, that are important. Just like in a marriage that there are certain things that are vital to have a marriage work. But those same rules, Gina and I will live those differently than Bill and Ruth. And and Bill and Ruth will live them out differently than, than, than Sherry and Dean. You're doing the same thing, slightly different. Why? Because you're different. And what rings our bell may not ring your bell. It's the same principle. We're walking in the same way, but from the outside it looks a little different. And it's like, I'm not so sure that they're right in that. Well, first of all, who, who asks you? Like I've said before, you know, I don't want the job of the Holy Spirit. I, it's everything I can do to get my life straight. I don't want to try to run your life. I have known, and there were, were moves of the, of, of, in the church, especially in the 70s and 80s, and I forget what it was called now, but basically it was, if you were going to make any decision in your life, you had to come and get the pastor's word on it. Lord, I, I, pastor, I need to buy this car, which one should I buy? And I had to go in prayer and discern the will of the Lord and come tell you what kind of car you should buy. And I'm, when I heard about it, I thought, who in the world would ever want that responsibility? If, when it comes time for me to buy a car, I, I hate buying cars because it requires a lot of work. Why would I want to try to figure it out for you when I can barely figure it out for me? Gina asked me one time, last time we bought a brand new car, she said, what do you want? I said, I want four wheels and four doors. That's it, and I want an automatic transmission, because I had been driving a five-speed for years, and I was tired of shifting gears, I was tired of having kids climb over me to get in the back seat. I wanted a four-door, I wanted an automatic, other than that, I don't care as long as it's mechanically sound. Don't care if it's a Ford, Chevy, Dodge, doesn't matter, as long as it runs, and I don't have kids crawling over me. Well, brother, you need to get specific with your faith. No, I just need a car. But when it comes to living other people's lives, I need to stay out of your business other than if you have a specific problem as as your pastor. Yeah, I can give you some spiritual insight, but my last instruction is going to be go and ask God. You figure it out. You get on your knees. You get before Him and you pray it out and you figure out what God's will for you is because if I figure it out and I'm wrong, it's my fault and I don't want that responsibility. If you, if you figure it out yourself, you're going to learn whether you're listening to the Spirit or you're hearing some other voice and those are things that you need to learn for yourself. Amen? Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana. Or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.